Welcome to the Local Climate Solutions Podcast, where we have in-depth conversations with local leaders in Island County, Washington, who are engaged in helping to reverse climate change and build community resilience. This podcast brings the topic of climate change down to a community level so that people feel more connected, engaged, and empowered. My guest today is Mike Usen. Mike is an electromobility and resiliency lead for DKS Associates. Mobile sources account for the lion's share of our region's greenhouse gas emissions. For this reason, Mike has worked at the intersection of transportation and environmental sustainability for over 25 years for market-leading consulting firms and large public agencies like King County Metro and the City of Seattle. Mike's team at DKS Associates has prepared vehicle electrification roadmaps and fleet electrification plans for multiple municipalities in Washington and California, including Seattle, King County, Island County, Walla Walla, South San Francisco, Sacramento, and many more. In our conversation, Mike describes the key components of the electromobility ecosystem, the state of this ecosystem, what is holding back vehicle electrification, and what the future looks like for the electrification of municipal fleets as well as personal vehicles. Now, on to my conversation with Mike. Well, hi, Mike. Welcome to the Local Climate Solutions Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss the topic of electromobility and how this can impact our carbon emissions. Good to be here. Yeah, so to start with, can you please tell us a bit about yourself and how you navigated into the field of electromobility? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, my background is actually environmental planning. So I, 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 most people in the electromobility space come at it from the energy side or from the transportation side, but I actually, I actually come at it from the environmental side. So uh, for a long time, I was the senior environmental planner of King County Metro Transit where I set up their sustainability program and wrote the sustainability plan. And I've been very, for a long time, I've been very interested in sort of the intersection of transportation and the environment. Um, As you're probably aware, the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions comes from transportation. And so to make a difference in um, reducing our carbon footprint, I I figured the, the, the best place, or at least the most effective place to be was in the transportation, uh, arena. Um, and so I joined my, my firm, DKS Associates, which is a transportation engineering and planning firm. Um, and our specialty is transportation performance. So basically reducing the um, uh, impacts on traffic and so forth, which basically makes transportation more efficient. And uh, about four years ago in 2017, I founded the electromobility practice here at DKS because being a bunch of smart engineers, I felt that we would be also we have the right skill set to help uh, engineer the transition away from carbon-based fueled transportation toward electric transportation. At that time, uh, it was you know it wasn't that long ago in as, as according to the calendar, but in terms of where the industry has, it is a long time. A lot has happened since then. So that was just at the very really beginning of sort of common uh, ad- adoption of. Um, of electric vehicles, the, the Tesla Model 3 had had just sort suddenly made electric vehicles possible for a larger swath of the population. The Nissan Leaf had already been available, but that's that's sort of a niche product. Um, and so the the clients that we tend to serve, which are 
our municipalities were starting to get interested in it and uh, there was suddenly demand uh, and we started with a project for the city of South San Francisco. Uh, they, they were asked by the city manager to electrify the fleet. And so he said, okay, you should be buying electric vehicles for our fleet. And the city's position was, well, yeah, that's great, but we need a way to charge them. So they hired DKS to help develop a plan for um, charging all those vehicles at various different sites. And, and so I was, the product because it was a master plan and I have a background in master planning. So I, I took on that project and developed a methodology for how you go about doing that. Since then, the demand has continued to climb and we've been working for many, many jurisdictions throughout the Bay Area of California, as well as here in the Puget Sound where I'm based. So our practice covers all of our offices and DKS's offices in up and down the West Coast in, in Northern Southern California, Oregon, where we're based and uh, here in uh, the Puget Sound. Um, since then, as I mentioned, we've been working for primarily for fleet electrification uh, because there's a real strong need for that. And I'll talk about that later on. Uh, we're also involved in master plans for electromobility. So helping jurisdictions essentially do what Island County is trying to do, which is increase the adoption of electric vehicles to transition away from, from liquid uh, carbon-based fuels um, through public charging infrastructure and residential and workplace and so forth. So it's a really, it's an exciting time for the industry. It's an exciting time for me personally. And it's something that makes me really excited because I feel like I'm, I'm actually making a real difference in terms of decarbonizing, well, reducing our carbon footprint specifically through transportation. Uh, and of course, if you're a sustainability manager, and I was, um, you know, largely what that is, is accounting. You're basically accounting for greenhouse gas emissions rather than dollars. And so one of the most measurable way that you can do that is through electrifying transportation. It is really exciting. And just to um, go back real quickly to something you said, it's this, this field, this industry, so to speak, has moved really quickly. When did you first get into uh, electromobility? Well, so I got into it when I was still at King County Metro Transit. And the question at the time when we were developing the sustainability plan was, well, you know, at that time, which was in 2012, 2013 and 2014, at that time, King County Metro was the second largest user of diesel fuel in the state after the state ferry system. And, and we had about a $52 million a year annual fuel bill for diesel. And the question is, well, at the question, excuse me, at that time was, well, what are we going to do about this? These are, these are, uh, you know, Metro had already been a leader at, um, uh, with the diesel electric hybrids. And they had at that time, the largest diesel electric hybrid fleet in the country for, for transit agencies. Uh, at that time, almost all transit agencies were operating on strict diesel fleets. Metro also operated a large fleet of electric trolley buses and still does. Um, so it had some experience with electrifying transportation. In fact, it had always had an electric fleet. And the reason people don't know this, but the reason for Metro's uh, hybrid, excuse me, it's trolley fleet is because electric traction power has, it, it has more torque than uh, diesel. And so Seattle having steep hills, the diesels don't have the ability to climb those hills. And so electricity made the most sense. Of course, battery technology wasn't available uh, up until recently, it wasn't at least. And so those run off, off wires. So they're, they're running off uh, overhead wires. And that's a traditional system that goes way, way, way back, even before the agency existed as a separate standalone transit agency. Um, 
so I, I, I joining uh, Metro and, and setting up their sustainability program, the question that we are wrestling with was, do we transition to natural gas? Do we transition to um, hydrogen fuel cells? Do we transition to uh, expanding, expanding the trolley system or, or some kind, you know, more hybrid buses? So the question was, you know, how are we going to reduce our carbon footprint? What's the best, what's the best way to do it from a, it's, it's not just about cost effectiveness, it's about actual, you know, what's feasible. And then back in 2012, 2013, 2014, there were very few options out there. Uh, Proterra had developed a prototype bus. BYD from China was starting to, to, to grow, uh, but local manufacturers, well, local in the United States, like New Flyer, which is Canadian, and Gillig, they didn't have any electric products yet. So uh, we realized that we had to do something, but the technology wasn't there yet, especially for, for a big transit agency like Metro, which run, runs, you know, uh, 1,400 coaches, uh, many of which have very long distance service. They have long spans of service that operate day and night uh, without having large capacity, affordable batteries. That's, that's a real challenge. And it still is a challenge. And now we're, uh, we're starting to see uh, because of battery technology improvements and, and better buses, we're starting to see Metro uh, and other transit agencies transition to all electric. And in fact, in California, all 200 transit agencies have to electrify by law. I think we're going to start seeing that nationwide. Uh, King County Metro is committed to an all electric fleet by 2030. Um, and so it's, it's a very interesting time for transit. Transit's a really important piece in the decarbonization pu uh, um, puzzle because um, by transitioning away from private vehicles, you know, um, the, you know, the ideal the ideal vehicle, in my opinion, is an electric bus, right? Uh, not, it's, not about, it's not about personal transportation. It's about a mixture of personal transportation and public transportation. We need to have both. Uh, and so I think it's really important to, to recognize that. And then, of course, in the last several years, we've also seen the advent of micromobility. So electrified scooters, electrified bicycles. Um, and that's a, an extremely efficient mode of transportation for, from, from a resource perspective as well as from an environmental perspective. Yeah, it, it is transition fast. I mean, I'm hearing about a time frame of, I mean, you've been thinking about it eight, 10 years ago, but really it's the last five years that really has seen this huge shift. And, and I think a lot of, as I call them, puzzle pieces have had to fall into place to successfully see this transition begin and, and get some momentum. But can you talk a bit, you've already talked a little bit about it, but if you could talk about what those you know, technology puzzle pieces are and where the state of that is at, like the batteries and the vehicles and the charging stations and that sort of thing. Sure. And, and I just want to address some context here first. And that is that uh, you said it's, you know, the last five years, actually, it's really the next five years. So we're not even there yet. We're, we're, we are at the very beginning of something right now, less than, you know, 2% of vehicle sales are electrified. Um, and, uh, you know, even in California, uh, which has the which is the number one uh, electromobility market in North America, uh, less than five percent of the vehicles on the road, I, I believe, are, are electric. So we're we're really at the infancy. We're gonna that's gonna change drastically in the next several years. I mean, it's it's been changing much more quickly recently, but but the real change hasn't even begun. Um, yesterday, Ford Motor Company announced, uh, or it, it had a rollout to this. The unveiling, I think, is the term that the automotive industry is starting to use, which is interesting because I think that used to be a reference to tombstones, but uh, now it's about new electric vehicles and the <laughs> unveiling of the Ford F-150, which according to Ford is the most popular um, pickup truck sold uh, you know, in, um, in the United States and has been for, for over four, four decades. Um, and so they've announced the, the 
the electrified Ford F-150 Lightning. And it was a, you know, it was a, it was a Elon Musk style presentation. And uh, basically that is a big breakthrough because, you know, especially for the kind of clients that I'm primarily working for, which are, which are municipal fleets, they're heavily dependent on pickup trucks. And here in the United States, we're very, we, we love pickup trucks. Ford F-150 is the most popular. Um, and to me, what was exciting about the presentation not not just that you know i mean this is big news for my clients but they are focusing on some of the attributes that electric vehicles are unique for so it's not just about transitioning a because it looks very similar to the gas powered f-150 that, that we see on the roads today but what they're really focusing on on some of the things that electric vehicles are uniquely suited for so uh for one thing it electric vehicles can outperform um, liquid-fueled vehicles because there's far more torsion in an electric motor than there is in a, in a gasoline engine. So they're not appealing from an environmental perspective. They're appealing because it's more, it's 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 got more muscle, it's quicker, and it can haul more. Um, but in addition to that, it has some really unique attributes, such as the ability to charge power tools. Right? You can run you can run power tools at a job site if you're in construction, and there's something there's I don't know, 20 or something outlets all over this thing, including in the frunk, in the, in the bed, in the cab. Um, and so you can also take it on a camping trip. And, and so they were really emphasizing all of these attributes that, that existing vehicles can't do. In addition to that, it has bi-directional charging capability, so it can charge your home during a power outage. So it, it functions as an auxiliary battery source. So they're really recognizing that it, it can do far more than what existing vehicles can do. And to me, that's exciting because we, we think of this as a, as a transition from one to another, but it's really more than that. There's really a, we're going through a revolution in terms of opportunities and electrics have a lot of attributes that, that current technologies don't have. So to get to your question, um, uh, I, I think it's really important to think about, about it as an ecosystem. And I use the term electromobility rather than, electric vehicles or just transportation electrification because it's really a con it's a convergence of two industries so there's the mobility or the transportation industry converging with the energy industry and uh, so the the participants in this industry are not just on the transportation side they're also on the energy side and so for the first time ever well for the first time in um, in in living memory at least um electrical utilities have a whole new customer base. Um, and so traditionally they've been selling to static load sources like buildings, right? Or um, you know, plug loads, but going forward, they recognize that there's a whole new opportunity for charging vehicles, uh, selling, you know, selling energy to, to, um, to vehicles and, and other, other things like planes and boats and bicycles, everything else. I guess they're all, you know, vessels and vehicles. That's a, that's a whole new market for them. So that means it's going to have an impact on the grid. And so the utility industry has to address that. And so all of the utilities here in Washington are developing transportation electrification plans. Um, and it's, again, this is, this is a new territory for them as well. Um, it's, an, it's exciting, but it's also, you know, it's a challenge. Um, uh, so what, what connects the vehicle to the grid is, are chargers. And um, there's, there's a number of different types of chargers, and I'll go through them really quickly because I, I suspect your listeners are familiar with this, but just for those who aren't, um, there's sort of three major types, three categories. The first is level one chargers, which are essentially a 120 volt wall outlet. Um, 
it's, it's, it, it provides a, a trickle charge essentially, and depending on the size of the battery, that, that could be plenty, or, or, and depending on the dwell time of the vehicle, that may not be sufficient. But it's, it's something that's very low cost, and all EVs, all electric vehicles come with a plug that can, can allow this to happen. Um, for most of us with, who drive electric vehicles, and especially for, for fleets, level two charging is the dominant type of charging, and that's using a 240 volt outlet. Um, and the charges come in different sizes, ranging from about four kilowatts to up, upwards to about 19.2 kilowatts. Um, they're typically in the six to seven kilowatts, and they allow a vehicle, to, a typical vehicle, to charge overnight easily. For fleet vehicles, it they they can they don't drive very much, so so that's plenty of of at least for municipal fleets. That's that's plenty of juice. And then the um, um, and so and so. Uh, in, in that case, the charger is actually on the vehicle. And the speed of charging is limited by the vehicle's acceptance rate. And different EVs have different acceptance rates. And what we're seeing is the newer EVs are starting to have faster acceptance rates um, on the AC side. So I, I believe the, the Ford uh, F-150 uh, uh, Lightning that was announced last night, I think, has a maximum charge rate of, I think, 9.4 kilowatts. Um, I'm not sure on that. They haven't released the spec, but that's based on my calculations, that's what it is. Um, on the DC side, so, the, and then the, the third category, which is sometimes referred to as level three charging, um, but it's, it's also known as DC fast charging or DCFC. Those chargers can charge much more quickly, typically above uh, 50 kilowatts. So, um, and they can go all higher than that. So the, the higher ones that are above that are called high power chargers and they can go all the way up to, well, they're, continuously being developed, but typically it's, it's 100 to 150 kilowatts, all the way up to, I think Tesla superchargers charge up to 250 kilowatts. Um, and we're starting to see higher voltage architecture on the, on the vehicles themselves to accept that rate. And so in this case, the chargers is not on the vehicle, but on the, on the, um, on the charger itself. And so that's what's the limiting factor. Those types of chargers tend to be far more expensive from a capital uh, perspective. However, um, because they're so efficient in, in terms of time and how quickly they charge, they, they actually can be a more cost-effective solution depending on, on, on how your, uh, on your charging needs and, and, and so forth. Did that address the questions? Yes, very much. Thank you. I mean, there's even more pieces than no, I even thought about this, but the grid itself is another really critical piece that uh, needs to be upgraded, enhanced as we go past 5% to 20, 30, 40% acceptance rate. So I just want to touch on that. So one of the things that I think um, people should be aware of, because it's exciting, is we tend to think of, of what is this going to do to the grid? What are the impacts this will have on the grid? Can the grid handle the additional load? And that is a very important question, but there's also the other side of that, which is what are the opportunities that having all of this dispatchable stored energy will provide the grid? And one of the trends that I've been tracking and, and we're starting to see becoming more mainstream is what's known as bi-directional charging or vehicle to grid, V to G, or even vehicle to everything, V to X charging. And, and um, very few vehicles right now have the ability for bi-directional charging. Nissan Leaf is one that does, uh, although the CHADMO system that it's using is essentially being replaced by a different standard called CCS. But the, um, uh, I think what we're gonna start to see, and it certainly that was, that was, to me was an exciting announcement from Ford yesterday, is that's gonna have bi-directional charging capability in Hyundai and, and uh, um, other, some of the other vehicles are starting to get in this. And once this happens, 
people, EV drivers, EV owners, fleets will be able to sell power back to the grid and use the stored energy to power other things, such as, as I mentioned, for doing it for, you know, charging your, uh, charging your camper or charging your house if there's a power outage. Um, if you have a, if you're a fleet operator, you can use that power to sell back to the grid during peak demand periods, generate some revenue to offset some of the cost, um, and it's going to help the grid too because it because the, you know rather than having to build additional capacity during the peak low demands, typically the most you know in most places the grid has sufficient capacity. It's only during the peak periods of demand, which tend to be in the evening, where capacity is insufficient. So rather than have to build a new power plant, why not be able to use smart charging and buy the power back from available energy storage sources, one of which could be you know, large numbers of electric vehicles that are plugged in in the evening um, and, and sell that, you know, they can buy that power back. Um, and so it generates revenue and it offsets cost. And I think it'll, it'll help the overall electrical system uh, you know, be more resilient in the future. Be more resilient and also uh, meet the requirements of net zero by 2030 and, and fully carbon-free by 2045. So I think that will all fall into place. It's really exciting, actually. So you talked a bit about where we're at in terms of technology, but there are also puzzle pieces, so to speak, that are necessary for a successful transition to electromobility or I'll say EVs, such as regulations or building codes or that sort of thing. Where are we at with that in the state of Washington and any other things that you think are necessary for successful transition? So one of the challenges about the state of Washington, and I do a lot of work in the state of California because California has been, um, well, I mean, California essentially originated the whole concept of, of air regulation because back in the 70s, pollution in the Los Angeles basin was so severe that it was a health, a major health issue. You know, you, you see old pictures from, from then. I'm, I'm old enough to remember those pictures. Um, <laughs> the, you know, it wasn't a place you'd want to live. You know, the smog, smog was a common term. It was so bad. Um, and, you know, even today, it's, it's, I, I wouldn't want to live there. You know, it's, it, the skies, it's, it's, sun, it's supposedly a sunny place, but by mid afternoon, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty gray. Um, and that's largely due to, to vehicle emissions. Um, and we've cleaned up vehicle emissions significantly since the 1970s, but you know, there's still room for improvement. And one of the ways to do that, of course, is to transition out of internal combustion vehicles to alternative fuel sources, especially electric. Um, and so in the state of California, they have uh, statewide, um, they have the state energy commission called California Energy Commission. They have the state utilities commission, and they're doing a, they're they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting regarding both regulations as well as in providing incentives. There's also um, you know air regional air quality districts scattered throughout the state, and they also offer incentives. So I I like to look at California as a role model for what other states could do as a way to help. Um, make this, you know, uh, um, engineer the transition to electromobility. Um, and, but I, I don't see that yet in Washington. I, I believe it's coming. And in the last, the last legislative session uh, passed some, I think, some really exciting um, new laws that, that uh, I'm, I'm really excited about because I think that's going to uh, start paving the way for opportunities here in, in the, the evergreen state. Um, what they also have in California is a state building code. So the way it works is, is statewide, there's a, there's a standard building code 
that that all jurisdictions either have to adhere to or develop their own what they know what are known as reach codes, which are which are even more aggressive than than the state um, building code. And I think that that's a, that's an exciting model because it provides some consistency across jurisdiction. To my understanding, in Washington, the the codes are all local. There's there's a lot of similarity between them, but uh, it would I think be a lot easier if we did it as a as a state rather than do it as as local jurisdictions. But you know politics. You know, I think being what they are, it's unlikely we're going to see that. Uh, however, it's good to see some new standards. And, and one of the things that we did on our work for Island County was pull together codes from, you know, from basically progressive jurisdictions from across the United States uh, to, to share with them. So they had a, essentially a, a set of choices uh, to, to draw from. But there are some good examples. And, um, you know, I think they, need, they will need to be updated as we go forward. One of the big challenges for building officials is that why would you mandate um, chargers for vehicles if you don't have EVs um, currently in need? And so, you know, you end up, if you require chargers, but there's no EVs yet, uh, aren't you forcing the building owner, the landowner, the developer to do things that, that, they, that they don't really uh, need at this moment? Uh, and the answer is, well, yes, but they're coming. And that, that's, a, that's a challenging argument to make since, you know, I can't prove that, right? If, you're, if I'm a building official, I, I can't prove that. So it, it cre creates a bit of a conundrum um, because we're almost there, but we're not quite. And the question is when? And the answer is, well, I think next year and I can't prove it. So it, it, it creates a bit of a challenge. So one way around that challenge is EV readiness, which basically requires the capacity to expand and that can be done through providing additional capacity additional load capacity in the electrical service so you design the electrical service for additional uh, load growth uh, you can uh, add make sure there's enough physical capacity in the electrical panel you can provide conduit between the um, the electrical room in the facility and the um, and the garage if, if it has a garage or the parking lot and so uh, it's much easier in new construction or doing major remodel to add capacity than it is to retrofit after the fact. Retrofits are extremely difficult to do. We're doing that right now for King County and various other clients, and it's it's a very expensive way. The biggest the biggest single cost on the infrastructure side is is the what's known in, in the industry as make ready. So basically, getting the power to the chargers. The chargers themselves aren't that expensive uh, relative to everything else, but it's 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 powering up those chargers where the costs come in. And, and, and so the best, the most cost-effective time to do that is, is before the building is built or at least during a major remodel. And another transition that's also happening that we're seeing in you know, places like the city of Seattle, they're transitioning away from natural gas uh, heating as, as they've traditionally been to electricity. And so they're gonna have to upgrade the electrical service anyway. So, so that's another good opportunity. In the past, utilities have been, um, loathe to provide more than one meter to a property. So typically, you know, the traditional it's been, you get basically one meter per parcel. Uh, they're starting to think, okay, now maybe that doesn't make the most sense. So, you know, if you can have electrical service uh, for a large parcel, maybe you have, have one meter for the building and another meter for the parking, since the parking may be in a different part of the parcel. And that's, that's flexibility that we didn't have before. We're starting to see that. I'm, I'm very excited about that. So, we talked about where the technology is in terms of transition to EVs. And I remember you talking about cost curve and where that's at. And, and I've seen some of the graphs that show EV adoption rates coming 
maybe you can talk about EV adoption rates and where we're at with the cost curves. Okay, well, let's let's look at it, not just in terms of cost, but sort of what is holding us back, such a low percentage of electric Great. vehicle ownership today to where we are likely to be in the future. And again, I'm a, I'm a planner, I'm not a profit. So uh, we, we, can, we can forecast growth, but we, we can't really predict it. But I think, you know, we've, I, I look at data all the time and I, I think we can draw, we can infer some, some conclusions based on, on, on the trends that we're, we're seeing. So there's, there's three major obstacles to vehicle electrification today. The first, and, and I'm not sure, there's no particular order, but just out of my brain here. Um, number one is the cost of an electric vehicle to drive it off the lot is, is significantly more, it's about you know, 20% more, to, depending on the model. Uh, you know, at least 20% more than, than a comparable um, internal combustion engine vehicle. And that's a big barrier to a lot of us. And, you know, why would I, why should I spend, um, you know, $40,000 on a Chevy Bolt when I can buy a Chevy Cruze for, you know, 32,000 or whatever. Um, it's probably even, for that model, it's probably even, probably even a, more, a larger gap. Um, and so, so that's a big issue. So, so there's the perception that a electric vehicle costs more. And it's a perception because if you, if you analyze the cost on a total cost of ownership basis over the life of the vehicle, electric vehicles even today cost less to operate. But we don't think that way. We think in terms of how much it's gonna to cost to buy the thing in the first place. Fleet buyers are a little different. Fleet buyers are looking at it from the total cost of ownership perspective, and that, that makes it a much different equation. But most of us don't think that way because you know, it's a matter of you know, how much can we afford at the time we're buying the vehicle. Mm -hmm. so, so that's number one is, is, is cost or at least perceived cost. The second is the ability to charge the vehicle. Um, if you live in a private home and you have electrical capacity um, and you can add a charger, then it's relatively low cost proposition. But if you don't, if you live in an older home that, that the panel and, you know, when I remember we've only had electricity for about a hundred years. I mean, electricity uh, as a, uh, as a, as part of a building is, is a relatively new invention. It's, it's, you know, basically goes back to the turn of the last century. And a lot of our homes, even here in the West predate uh, the advent of, of common commercial electricity. So, you know, when they, when they, when electricity was, you know, added as a service to buildings in the 19 teens, um, they, they, they put in a very small amount of capacity because we didn't have much that ran on electricity. And over the last, you know, century, we've started, you know, get more and more inventions that are, are powered by electricity. Now everything's powered by electricity. And in fact, electricity is the cleanest form of energy. Um, but not all of us have additional capacity in our homes to add that to, to provide charging. So it's, it's about a $10,000 hit to, to replace your panel and upgrade your system in order to put in an electric vehicle in, a, in many older homes. So that's a, that's a huge drawback. And of course, not all of us live in private homes. A lot of us, especially in, in urban areas, live in multifamily housing where there is no access to charging. And that's a real challenge. You, you may not have the ability to charge a vehicle because you, your home um, is in an apartment, your car lives in a garage, the garage has no electrical capacity, and your landlord has no incentive to do anything about it. Even if the code requires it, that building was not built to the current code, it was built to the previous code. So they, they, they're not, they don't have to retrofit that building. And it's only when there's enough economic demand to do so that they're going to change that. So building charge and price are two of the, uh, the big obstacles. And the third is um, 
range, so-called range anxiety, um, which is, um, it's a psychological condition that um, apparently psychiatrists can't deal with, but hopefully uh, the charging networks like Electrify America, EVgo, and Tesla can, can address. And, and part of Ford's announcement yesterday was that they're gonna have access to charging networks. They didn't say which one, so I'm curious to see which one that is. But there, there is a perception that you can't take your vehicle on a long distance trip um, or even a medium distance trip because you'll run out of juice and you'll be stranded. And, and that, that's a, a big concern especially for folks like me who are skiers or uh, are hikers and are going to go on, you know, going to go park the vehicle somewhere in a remote location where there's no access to charging. Mm -hmm. So that I, I, I kind of joke about it because of the name range, range anxiety, but it, it's, it's a serious situation, especially in, in large swaths of the United States. If you uh, drive North to South on I-5, the West Coast Electric Highway provides charging at least every 50 miles. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's DC fast chargers, so it's, it's relatively high performance charging. So going north-south is no problem. However, if you want to go east, uh, good luck. You know, you go into Montana and the only places that there are chargers are at tourist locations for Tesla um, and, you know, auto dealerships or campgrounds. It's very, very limited. And so that's a real concern. Um, you know, America culture is all about freedom of movement, right? You know, freedom, freedom of the open road. Well, it's great if you... If you if you can can fuel, but if you can't, you're you're screwed. So that's a that's a huge challenge. So those three issues: perceived price, availability of charging, and range anxiety are the big obstacles. So now I want to talk a little bit about each of those and where we're headed as to how we're going to address them because I think that's Great. really important to understand why yes. that's going to facilitate the transition to an electric transportation future. So starting in the same order, um, price, uh, perceived price. Right now, the most expensive component of an, an electric vehicle is the battery, the energy storage. Uh, very different from a gas engine, uh, which has a, a fuel tank. The, the fuel system is a very low cost part of it. Even when you have to replace your fuel pump, it's a relatively minor cost. Um, so uh, as a result, uh, most auto manufacturers that make electric vehicles tend to put in relatively small batteries. So they typically had, up until recently, they were they were much smaller. They've gotten a lot bigger and, and more efficient. So new electric vehicles typically have a range of about 200 to 250 miles. Um, and the, the batteries are, again, being the most expensive part of the reason that they also, they're also heavy. So current battery technologies have liquid electrolytes, they're heavy, and they're expensive. Um, one of the things that, to me, is most exciting looking forward is all of the research that's funded by you know, Silicon Valley venture capitalists on new battery technologies. And uh, every week I read about some new breakthrough in battery technology in some laboratory on some university campus or, or, uh, or, or such. And one of the, one of the ex most, I think, promising technologies is, is known as uh, solid state, which is, which is when the electrolyte is solid rather than liquid. And there's a number of companies that have made recent breakthroughs um, using um, uh, uh, lithium metal uh, battery chemistry and lithium metal has the ability to charge more frequently. Uh, so you have more charging cycles. Uh, it, it allows higher energy density. It has more range. It doesn't have, it doesn't uh, burn like uh, uh, lithium ion batteries do. Uh, there's, there's other advantages to it as well. And uh, it's, 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 it's a technical technically challenging, but they're starting to make significant advancements. And I believe we're going to start seeing that in, commercial deployment within the next several years. And when that happens, 
that's going to, once they figure out how to develop it at scale and production scale, um, I think that will also bring down the cost. So we will have uh, lower cost and, and or better range vehicles. So that'll address two problems. One is, is the cost, the other is, is the range anxiety. Um, there's other, other changes that are happening too. I mean, if you think about any new technology, it's expensive when you first build it. So, so you know, until they figure out how to produce at massive scale and, and the economy of scale brings down the, down the cost, the, the purchase cost, um, you're gonna have a cost barrier. Um, the, I was excited that the, the, um, the F-150 Lightning, and I, I don't mean to be sounding like a promo spot for it, but it, it, just, it is kind of big news and it happened yesterday. Um, the, the entry level price is gonna be about, I think something like in the low 40s for an F-150. And that's before the tax credit. So the tax credit is gonna be in the, in the low 30s, which makes it cost competitive with a gas F-150. And that's, that's huge um, because that means, especially for fleets, um, they'll be able to buy electric vehicles uh, affordably. And I think we're going to start to see significant deployments uh, because it's suddenly going to be now um, perceived as more cost effective. Again, the total cost of ownership is, is the right um, metric to judge cost by, but we don't. Um, so that's a really important opportunity. And again, it'll, it'll address both the, the cost and the range anxiety. And then um, the other big challenge is, 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 charger availability, both for, you know, for residents and for, um, for travelers. And I believe that it is up to individual jurisdictions to require and inform, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's both a carrot and a stick. We need to provide incentives. We need to provide requirements for more charging infrastructure, um, especially in high density areas. I mean, if we want to, if we want to be look at this as part of, a, you know, what we don't want to do is scare people out of cities in, into private homes because they can't charge, right? Uh, high density living is still more um, um, lower, lower in, you know, from an environmental, overall environmental footprint, density makes sense. So we, we need to bring charging into high density living situations and working situations. So um, the places that people prefer to charge for convenience is at home. And the second most popular place is at work. So incentivizing both residents uh, and, and property developers and property owners to in, install chargers. Uh, and then secondly, at employment sites, uh, you know, I think it would be better if people commuted by transit, but here in the United States, most people don't, most people still drive to work. Um, and then, you know, provide more, more other opportunities, you know, such as, um, you know, helping electrify transit. And I'm hoping that, you know, one of the big campaigns that the Biden administration campaigned on was uh, electrifying transportation and that they had a campaign promise that hopefully they'll be held to of, of half a million chargers around the United States. Um, they didn't say what kind of chargers those were, but hopefully those will include chargers for transit vehicles and chargers for fleets. Um, and uh, as well as, you know, an urban residential area so that we can really uh, distribute chargers to those who need them. Um, again, if, if you're a private landowner, it's, it's much easier to deal with this than if you're a resident or an employee that does, does not own the, the charging site. Now, remember, on the employment side, a big challenge is not all, you know, many employers do not own their facilities, right? Um, mm -hmm. They are tenants. And so it's up right. to the building or the property owner to install the charger, not the employee employer themselves. And so that, that, that's a, another conundrum that has to be addressed. So can you now talk a little bit about fleet vehicles? You've addressed it multiple times, but what are you seeing in terms of trends there for vehicle electrification and um, 
I know you've been doing some work with Island County specifically. Maybe you can even talk about sort of the Island County fleets and how that might, uh, how you'd see sure. the trend in terms of their electrification. So uh, let, I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about two kinds of fleets. The first is the public uh, fleet, and the second is, is the private fleet. Because I think uh, you know, there's about eighty, there's about eighty eight hundred and no, I'm sorry, there's 8.5 million fleet vehicles in the United States. The majority of those are private, but the ones that I've been working on personally have been public. So we're currently helping um, Alameda County and California and Hayward and Dublin and Oakland and um, Fremont and Berkeley and many, many other cities in the Bay Area. We're also working with King County um, and City of Seattle uh, and King County Metro on their fleets. We recently completed a project, as you mentioned, for Island County. What is driving these projects for the most part is that these municipalities have climate action plans that require them to uh, achieve some net carbon reduction by a certain time frame. So for example, King County has a mandate to, to, uh, to basically have an all electric fleet in order to meet their climate action plan by the year 2030. So they have to electrify half of their fleet by 2025 the other half by 2030, which is a very aggressive schedule if you think about it from where we've been, okay? Not about where we're going, but where we've been, that's an aggressive schedule. I think it's achievable, um, but it's not gonna be a straight line growth. It's, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna, uh, it's gonna be shaped more like a hockey stick just because of, because of the vehicle constraint. So what, again, what's driving them is, is not the, um, it's not operational considerations, it's really um, their climate action plans. Um, and it's not economics. Um, and so because of that, we're seeing progressive West Coast jurisdictions take this on and it's generating demand for fleet style electric vehicles. And again, that's probably why I'm so excited that, that Ford made its announcement yesterday because they're heavily dependent on, on pickup trucks and vans <laughs> and the kinds of vehicles that, that up until recently, the automotive industry hasn't been addressing. Um, you think you know the most popular electric vehicle in the world is, is Tesla, and they don't have any commercial fleet vehicles, or for that matter, municipal fleet vehicles. And we were hired by one of our clients to analyze the viability of, of um, the Tesla Model Three as a fleet vehicle, and it and it did very well. But the city council shot it down because they didn't like the perception of their city bureaucrats driving around in luxury cars. You know, e even though it outperformed everything else from a total cost of ownership basis over the you know ten to twelve year lifespan of the vehicle, uh, it was a perceptual issue. So it'll be. I don't think having an electrified F one hundred and fifty will create that same perception problem. Um, so Island County has many different fleets. Uh, not, well, the county has its own fleet, and then there's Island Transit, and then each of the jurisdictions, and then of course you've got institutions on on, on the in the county as well as the Navy. All of them have operate their own fleets. All of them really need to look uh, carefully at what's involved in making the transition. Uh, the work that we did didn't get into that level of detail. Uh, what we're really focusing on is we developed a sort of a, a, a guidebook for what they could, what they need to consider, and and in terms of uh, vehicle selection and in terms of charger selection and and some of the charging strategies that were available. Um, they're just at the beginning of this, and they have a long way to go. Um, the good news is that um, the timing is good. This is the time they should be planning that transition because uh, we now have we now have enough information to plan. I mean, it's very difficult to plan for an electric fleet when you don't know the battery size 
or the acceptance rate, uh, you don't know how many charges you need. But we, we do know that those vehicles are coming and we now have that information so we can, we can actually plan and design the charging infrastructure as needed. And what's great about most municipal fleets is that they, the, their vehicles don't drive very many miles per day. Um, uh, for the most part, a typical municipal fleet drives between 25 and 26 and a half miles per day, the typical fleet vehicle, uh, which could basically get by with level one charging. Uh, we generally recommend level two charging because it makes sense to have the data and uh, smart charging allows you for that and you can manage the charging and then ultimately having the bi-directional capability, which I, which I uh, alluded to earlier. Um, but this is definitely the time to begin planning the charging infrastructure so that they can install the charging infrastructure in time for next year. So about a year from now, we're going to have a far more choices in electric vehicles, especially for fleets than we have today. So right now there are no electric vans. There, there, are, there are some, but they're, they're sort of, um, you know, they're, they're limited production, very expensive. Uh, ditto for pickup trucks, but all, but vans, pickup trucks, medium duty vehicles, um, as well as a much broader range of SUVs and light duty vehicles that, that fleets like to have are coming out in a year or so. And so now is the time to get that charging infrastructure in the ground so they'll be ready to go. There's no point in buying an electric vehicle if you don't have a way to charge it. Very exciting. Okay, well, thank you. So kind of shifting gears a little bit in this podcast, I like to explore the intersections between environmental, economic, and human health as it relates to these different climate solutions. Um, so we've talked about reducing carbon emissions with electromobility. What other environmental benefits do you see? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I mean, so much of the focus right now because our, our planet depends on it is on, on, on carbon reduction. And, and that certainly is, you know, I mean, if we don't solve our climate crisis soon, um, we, you know, it's game over. I mean, this right. is, uh, this is a really serious problem, and um, it is it is ex it's an existential threat. I can't emphasize that enough, and that's what motivates me every morning when I get up. Um, but there's immediate uh, health issues associated with with the emissions from um, internal combustion engines that we also should think about, um, such as the, what's EPA refers to as the criteria air pollutants. Those include things like nitrogen oxides and and um, um, uh, various other emissions that are um, are known carcinogens that cause uh, res respiratory problems and in, particularly in urban areas, um, mm -hmm. that's a real serious consideration. And um, uh, we should pay more attention to that because, you know, we sort of accepted, you know, for the last century that we're willing to put up with inhaling the exhaust, these poisonous gases. Mm -hmm. Uh, emitted from from vehicles because of the the benefits of of transportation, right? We're we're willing to sacrifice our health for mobility, and to me, that's a terrible um, that's a Hobson's choice. We shouldn't have to make that choice. And so, by transitioning to zero emission vehicles, uh, we don't have to make that choice anymore. And that alone should be reason enough. Even if we weren't having a climate, an existential climate crisis, we should be making the transition just for the health benefits of not having to inhale those exhaust ga gases. I live on a bus line and I'm inhaling the, the particulate emissions. And th those are also carcin carcinogenic and create all kinds of other problems. Um, black carbon is a serious problem. And, you know, those are, those, th those are great reasons to transition away from, from uh, fossil fuels. And of course, a lot of skeptics say, yeah, but most of our electricity is generated by coal. 
And throughout the United States, that is the truth. However, we live in the Northwest where, um, you know, I'm in Seattle City Light territory, which is mostly from uh, hydropower. I, I like to joke that instead of, of burning uh, fossil fuels, we're burning salmon habitat because there are impacts. Yes, there are impacts to hydro, but at least it's not emitting greenhouse gas emissions or criteria air pollutant emissions. And so if you're not a salmon, it, it, it's definitely uh, healthier to, to uh, be using hydropower. Uh, and of course, you know, in, in uh, uh, Island County, you're, you're dependent on, on utilities that that do use some carbon emissions. They, you know, the uh, Puget Sound Energy and um, uh, I can't think of- Snohomish County PUD is almost carbon free. So I'll give them that's credit right. for that. Snowpud, yeah, Snowpud uses, uses hydro as well. So, you know, both of those, the, the dominant power supply comes from non-carbon sources and even the coal is not being burned locally. So you're getting a much cleaner mix. Now, the other thing about electric vehicles that people forget is that it's inherently more efficient to turn a, to turn a wheel when you're using an electric motor than an internal combustion engine. Internal combustion engine, most of the energy is wasted as heat, whereas all of that energy is consumed, uh, excuse me, is used to turn those wheels for an electric vehicle. So it's just far more efficient just, from, just because of the physics. Interesting. Wow. Well, you um, you already touched on the additional environmental benefits, which touched directly into the human health benefits, and that's the air quality. You know, I we haven't talked about the school bus systems, but I often think about those diesel engines spewing fuel exhaust while these cute little kids are getting onto the buses. Huge opportunity, school, school buses. And, and, you know, the Biden administration is planning to electrify, I think, 20% of, of U.S. buses, which I think is a good start. It would be better if it was 100%, but at least, hey, we're, that's, that's far more than we have now. One last question. Since this is a locally focused podcast, do you have one or two key suggestions for Island County to help accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles and electromobility? Sure. Um, I think that the, the, the jurisdictions on the county should collaborate on, on developing some, some sort of shared standard, basically because, you know, most of the jurisdictions in Island County are small rural and, and small rural municipalities have limited resources. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, not, it's not inexpensive to develop new codes uh, and standards. So I think they should work together. And I think they are under the IRTPO to develop a, a shared understanding of what's needed to be done. And part of the work that we did was to provide uh, examples of codes from, from progressive jurisdictions from around the United States um, as a way to show them some of the examples of, of how to update um, the building codes and the land use codes to accelerate the um, uh, inclusion of charging infrastructure in, in, in uh, in, in different land uses. And I think that's something that developers need, you know, they need those, they need those requirements. And I think the other part of that is incentives. So we, we need to both provide carrots and sticks. Um, one of the things that's lacking here in the state of Washington, I'm hoping will change in the near future, and I believe it will, is the lack of incentives for chargers. And I think the utilities and the local jurisdictions can play a role in that and in helping to, to reduce the barriers, which is on the capital side, to help um, uh, with chargers. For example, in California, uh, there's this program called the Cal EVIP program, which basically uh, provides uh, uh, rebates for installation of chargers um, to offset some of the costs. And that's, that's, a, that's a very effective incentive 
for getting chargers installed in different places. And that I think would serve as a good role model. Again, this is not something that, that um, Island County can do on its own. It's gonna require funding support, but I believe that's coming uh, both at the federal level and also at the state level. Uh, and then the other area where they could be more engaged and, and have been certainly through the project that we're working on is getting more public charging infrastructure installed, especially DC fast chargers in, in key locations. Um, Island County is, is um, you know, is on the Highway 20 is, is an important uh, tourist route. Um, uh, tourists are a great source of revenue and um, increasingly they're going to be driving electric vehicles. If you're going to go on a long road trip, an electric vehicle is a much more comfortable vehicle to ride in. It's nice and quiet. It's smooth operating. It's got quicker pickup. Um, and so, uh, but, but if you're driving an electric vehicle, you're going to look at, you're going to look at plug share and say, Oh, there's nowhere for me to charge. I'm not going to go there. So um, I think that the, the businesses that serve travelers such as restaurants and hotels uh, should take it upon themselves to really recognize the importance of adding charging infrastructure. Um, and again, that's something that should be done in cooperation with, with the county and with the state uh, through incentive programs, because it, it is expensive and, you know, we're all still struggling from the pandemic. So this is probably not a great time to want to make big investments, but we need to make those investments if we're going to um, be able to attract um, the future traveler. Excellent suggestions. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for all your time today and sharing your wisdom and experience as it relates to the transition to electromobility. Thank you, Kathy. It was really great to talk. And I, I hope that uh, I hope to see Island County taking a leadership role as they have been. Um, and it's uh, I look forward to getting to be in an electric bus or driving an electric bike or uh, an electric vehicle sometime on, in Island County in the not too distant future. Thank you for listening to the Local Climate Solutions Podcast. Information on how to connect with our guest can be found in the show notes. If you like what you heard, please share with your friends and neighbors. And if you have ideas for people you would like to hear interviewed, please send me an email. The intent for this podcast is to learn from local leaders in Island County, Washington, who are working to reduce climate change and build community resilience. My hope is that other people take this idea and implement it in their own community with their own style. Please feel free to reach out if you would like support.